In this atmosphere, the Ukrainian friends, well, friends whom I got to meet there just a couple of days ago, they start telling stories about their friends and close relatives being killed in the Donbas conflict. And, well, not that I haven't heard of that before, not that I haven't encountered that in news and stuff, but that was such a direct connection and experience that the very next day I woke up with this completely irrational feeling that I can't afford not to do something about it. Relationally speaking, we are all in these bubbles and we mostly, most of us, I would say, kept intimate relationships only with those with whom we are on the same page here. The regime still holds on being passive. So it still doesn't want people to be active, even if they are actively supporting the war. It still prefers them to be just, you know, leave us to our own thing. Whenever I face this dilemma of fearfully hiding my position or being open about it, I try to choose and prefer the second one for my own sake. Not for justice, not even for like, you know, it, it's not even a moral thing. It's just my way of remaining my power, of feeling that I can afford and be courageous enough and powerful enough to do that. So it's kind of saving myself. Hello, everyone. This is Maz. As you will notice, I'm publishing the following conversation with Vlad Sakovich, a Russian peace activist, complete on the public channel. While some will undoubtedly judge Vlad, and probably me, as somehow being Kremlin apologists, I ask you to listen to the full interview to hear about the challenges faced by those in Russia who oppose the invasion of Ukraine. In this conversation, you will hear from one of the very few courageous and extraordinarily brave Russians who are doing whatever they can to increase the consciousness within Russia about the war that is carried out in their name. I conducted this interview with Vlad for a very simple reason. I want to bring to light the fact that there are at least some in Russia who are choosing to reject the dominant narrative and who are fighting in the best way they know how. And while it is undoubtedly true that Vlad and those he works with are a minority, I hope that this interview can highlight the complexities and risks involved in standing up against a powerful regime. It's a testament to the resilience and courage of individuals who, despite the odds, are striving for a more ethical and peaceful future. Lastly, and unrelated to my interview with Vlad, I just want to remind you of an initiative I mentioned in our latest newsletter. Namely, my friends over at Into.coms are hosting a content creator contest themed Confronting the Climate Crisis. Into.coms is welcoming entries that show how individuals, societies and organizations are dealing with climate change, either in their daily lives or in their work. There are three main categories open for submissions, photography, video, and AI-generated images. To find out more about this excellent initiative, please follow the link in the show notes. And if you're not on the newsletter distro list, please go to our website to register. Okay, now let's dive into my conversation with Vlad Sakovich, a peace activist from Moscow. My guest today is Vlad Sakovich, who is speaking with me today from Moscow. Vlad is a Russian educator, psychologist, and interpreter, but who has since the 2014 Donbass War and Crimea's annexation, found himself at the intersection of pacifism, anti-militarism, and anti-war activism. Since then, he has led grassroots dialogue initiatives, explored topics of collective trauma and conflict facilitation, and has grown networks within the sparse Russian anti-war movement, as well as with colleagues from Ukraine, Belarus, Finland, and Sweden. 
In response to the February 22 Russian invasion, Vlad started facilitating open forums, which are online semi-psychological dialogue spaces for Russians to discuss various topics related to the war. With a group of colleagues, he also runs an online course on civic facilitation, which explores ways to foster and support difficult civic dialogue in society. Vlad chose to stay in Moscow with his family, despite the risk associated with his work, as this allows him to remain connected to the local sentiment, and in particular those who, like him, were quietly in the background to change the Russian narrative surrounding this war. Vlad joins me today to discuss how everyday Russians perceive this war, as well as to discuss his efforts and those he works with in creating spaces for dialogue. I must highlight that Vlad is joining me using his real name, which is a very courageous act, especially given how any who question the Russian regime are treated in Russia. On that note, Vlad, it's a real privilege to speak with you. Thank you for joining me on The Voices of War. Thank you for asking to come and inviting me. Uh, Vlad, uh, given your background, uh, I think I must start with asking about your own motivations to do the work that you do. So maybe we can start uh, with you sharing the moment you realized you wanted to be actively involved in anti-war activism. Was it uh, a gradual process for you or was there a specific incident that ignited uh, your passion for this type of work? Yeah, uh, it actually was a series of incidents even if it might be the case that I was kind of, you know, gradually getting ready for that, but then something sparks it and, and it mm. happens. Uh, and when I think of it, I, I, I just imagine myself, you know, before I got into this topic and into the into the sphere. And I guess it's a picture that's definitely familiar for many in Russia and maybe uh, over the world as well. Mm -hmm. When I considered myself to be an activist, in a sense that most of my work and most of my projects, they had this flair of changing society and working with people towards, you know, how they build the community and stuff. Mm -hmm. And never did I engage with politics. Mm -hmm. And, you mm -hmm. know, I always, that's, that's also a feature of my generation, but, but also, you know, the way it was in the atmosphere in Russia back then, I guess, in the, in the early 2010s, uh, complete mistrust to any kind of politics and politicians, yeah. complete, complete mistrust that anything can be changed by politics, that it's just, you know, the game running out there and you cannot really influence it. So the only way you, you, you can change stuff is, you know, dealing directly with people, with societies, with communities, with the perception, with the culture. So on this level. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in, after 2014, I still stayed in this position for a while. I was opposed to annexation of Crimea. I like was against it, but you know, kind of passively and quietly and still doing my own thing. Okay, here I am mm. within the education domain, working with people, psychology, this, that, and I'm against this, but not much but it's happening. Do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's happening like, you know, and that was still the time when you could post on Facebook how, how much you are against it and stuff mm. when it wasn't uh, criminalized. And uh, then I remember I was participating in an international conference, Integral European Conference, with people all over the world, uh, also like mostly in the domains of psychology and integral work and uh, working with communities and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were like maybe 500 people wow. there in the conference, it was in mm -hmm. Hungary. Mm -hmm. And it so happened, there was a Ukrainian delegation there and I just, you know, clicked mm. with the person from Ukraine. She was a mediator. 
and we just matched and we were, we were like you know so much on the same vibe on, on yeah. like like-minded like soulmates from the first minute we spoke yeah, and yeah. it was such a strong feeling i mean like really this getting together and be like i know exactly what you feel i know yeah. exactly what you think and and it was like this complete you know fit yeah, yeah. Uh, and it really felt like you know meeting a soulmate which happens sometimes yeah, happened yeah. definitely in my life and it was throughout the conference and then I remember us sitting on the last day of the con on the last night of the conference. It's all over, and we are basically waiting for the buses to take us to the airport. Yeah. And suddenly, the Crimea gets into our conversation. Yeah. And the resonance we had, and the feet, and and like you know, staying on the same page, feeling we had all the days throughout the conference just in a second that blows away yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know we are so triggered and she's very much triggered and i'm and i'm and like i'm against the annexation and stuff but i'm just trying to stay in the position that like you know it's actually complicated and i don't see realistic ways how russia can return crimea right now given the circumstances yeah, and how yeah. it can be done and the people who stayed there and stuff and she's like and boom yeah 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 everything was and that really struck me you know the way the connection broke yeah uh, but that was still not the point that just kind of, you know, shocked me and 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 just was, you know, completely yeah. in my face. And then that woman, she actually invited me just in a couple of weeks to attend the conference in Switzerland, which was basically a gathering of more or less, I could say, peace activists and peace builders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was an NGO working for dialogue and peace and stuff mm -hmm. for quite some time, I guess, from after the Second World War. And there I went, she actually didn't, she couldn't because of other reasons. And there was a Ukrainian delegation there as well. Yeah. And, uh, well, we had different kind of talks and processes and masterclasses and this and that. And then also the last day, the last night of the, of the conference. And we happened to be sitting outside of the venue, me and most of the Ukrainian delegation, in this very communion kind of yeah. setting. Yeah, we yeah. took a guitar, yeah. we had a campfire, yeah. we had some wine, yeah. we sang songs by guitar. I sang a song that I wrote myself, which was very like, you know, also touching and sincere and vulnerable and, and stuff. Wow. And we were also so much together in this and there was nothing to split us apart. And then in this atmosphere, the Ukrainian friends, well, friends whom I yeah. got to meet there just yeah. a couple yeah. of days ago, they start yeah. telling yeah. stories about their friends and close relatives being killed yeah. in the Donbass conflict. And, well, not that I haven't heard of that before, not that I haven't encountered that in news and stuff, but that was such a direct connection and experience that the very next day I woke up with this completely irrational feeling that I can't afford not to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I had no idea what to do. And then I got back to Russia and I started just brainstorming and, and trying this and that and trying to gather the anti-war activists or do some master classes or do this or that. So it was kind of a random search, especially in the beginning. Yeah. But that was the moment when I was like, you know, I have to do something about it. I have no idea what, but. That's, uh, I mean, that's hugely powerful for a number of reasons. Firstly, I just want to pick out one one thing you raised and that is that you 
you clicked firstly with the Ukrainian lady of the first conference and then, of course, with the Ukrainian delegation. What did you click over? As in, what was it that bonded you? Uh, what were the uh, recognitions that you re uh, that, that, that echoed, I guess, between the two, let's call them sides, right? Because at that point in time, uh -huh. they probably weren't sides. You kind of felt probably like one people, like, I guess. Uh, and I can relate to... I guess yeah. Serbs and Croats uh, that I have met throughout my throughout my time. When you say the guitar and that sort of stuff, uh, I, I can relate uh, uh, to that point a lot. Uh, but I just want to tease out some of those points about what were the points of recognition and the points of, um, uh, I guess, where you clicked and gelled. Well, that's a good question. Uh, on one hand, I guess that that's just something that happened with people, whatever there country of origin or nation or background is for me just you know this recognition of a very much like-minded person with a similar background who just i don't know when we were sitting on on on, on the uh discussion tables on the conference or something and we had like completely similar reaction and response to what's happening often the times critical by the way yeah. <laughs> and even sarcastic i would say but there was also something something about cultural similarity. And that's a uh, tricky area to speak about, you know, in, in the current uh, context. Yeah. Because now when you speak about the closeness and similarity of Russian and Ukrainian culture, that's the way you start touching this colonial space of like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the very approach Russia yeah. started the invasion with. But that's also true. Yeah. And there was this cultural similarity among us, yeah. which kind of brought us together, especially in the international context when there are people all over the globe and we know that we are here together just doesn't mean, I mean, like we were much closer than me with other Russian delegates on the conference. So it's mostly, you know, personal, Yeah. but there was this cultural closeness as well. That's cannot, interesting that, that deny it. Again, it's an interesting point. So, so, so it strikes me that there's a particular distinction between you and the rest of the Russian delegation. So, so, so then maybe it's a more personal question also, uh, whilst acknowledging that there is the cultural similarities which are undeniable. And again, I can draw examples uh, about you know the Bosnian context. Culturally, we are so similar yeah. to Serbs next door to Croats uh, to the northwest. There's no question of that. There's no denying it. When it was Yugoslavia, we all sang the same songs. We all had the same. Uh, love for the same bands, etc., etc., etc. So, so, so those ties are very, very strong. Uh, but the point you made is that it perhaps it was uh, that that you were somehow more forward leaning, uh, or perhaps you had a different view or perspective uh, to the rest of the Ru Russian delegation. I want to pick pick that out a little bit. Uh, was that the case? Did I misunderstand? And in, and if not, if 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 indeed it was the case, what makes the difference? What, why were you different to the rest of the Russian delegation? Uh, I mean. This is just the way we are different with most of the people, I guess. Uh, it wasn't something uh, extraordinary or exceptional. Uh, Do you have any background? Do you have a, 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 a your, your personal background, personal experience, per much closer connection to U Ukraine and Ukrainians? No, not not much, not really. No. Uh, I guess it was uh, what what really you know kind of distanced me from let's say, the rest of the Russian delegation on the conference <clears throat> was my uh, weird, in a sense, 
<clears throat> trickstery background like for most of my life and most of my career i stayed out of this official path so mm. i really just once in my life i was officially employed and i always worked in projects and independent teams and horizontal communities and stuff like that <laughs> uh, you know also being this romantic kind of a guy trying to change the world and trying to change the society having kind of a disrespect for money and careerism and stuff and most of russian delegations they were from a very uh famous russian psychological institute with all the right. certificates and stuff and they were like yeah you know we were yeah yeah, yeah. so okay. that's that's uh but there were people like that from from uh from from the rest of the countries as well i i don't know there was something about us she was a mediator and she was into dialogue and how to make dialogue and how to make connection and how to and she actually worked because it was already a couple of years of the of the donbass conflict going on so she actually worked on the front line trying to do some grassroots dialogue initiatives from like for people in donbass from the east and from the west and stuff mm. uh, i mean she was polarized but she also were trying to go deeper underneath the mm -hmm. typically typically per perceived layers mm. of what was going on and the thing is like you know since we already got personal <laughs> yeah. uh, i just want to mention that the cycle also kind of closed because last year i guess was it yeah it was well half a year after the invasion started that person the ukrainian mediator she died and she wasn't killed in, in the conflict directly she died of disease but that also i mean like that that was partially connected to the difficulties in supplies of medicine in ukraine and stuff so you know it's still very and she was very much emotionally involved obviously and engaged with working with the civic society in ukraine working with volunteers helping the ukrainian army and stuff so that obviously kind of stressed her and burned her out so in a sense also not directly i feel that the war killed her then and well, that's a heavy plate in my heart, to be honest. Mm. And there's also perhaps a, a dark symbology in that, uh, because it was, you know, post the kind of first few months or weeks even of the war, uh, that any hope uh, of uh, a peaceful resolution or Russian withdrawal or even potentially Russian defeat uh, on the Eastern Front uh, or around the Donbass uh, kind of died and therefore also any hope of dialogue uh, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, kind of negotiations etc uh, perhaps didn't die but it certainly dwindled off uh, into the distance as the indeed war escalated indeed, yeah. uh, so perhaps there's a some some dark symbolism um uh, there as well so then if, if if we can move on to i guess your career and your path what is it what is the work that you ended up doing and what is the work that you do now mm -hmm. Uh, and Fair. what does that work hope to achieve in a country like Russia? Yeah, so I would really say it's it's a rather, uh, you know, many different directions and, and tries and trials. I cannot yeah. really call it a, 
a, a single, comprehensive yeah, piece yeah, of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. I understand Unfortunately, that. and 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 maybe inevitably. Mm, mm. Uh, so in yeah, in in the first, I mean, like those years after I returned from from the conference, mm. being convinced that I need to do something, and until the invasion, that was a series of uh, of different initiatives and projects. Some of them were also kind of symbolic. For instance, I remember like we had this annual celebration in Russia on the 9th of May, which is the victory day in Russia in the, yeah. in the well, they call it the Great Patriotic War within yeah. the Second World War framework. And, uh, you know, more and more with years, and especially after the Crimea annexation, the celebration became just so much militarized with yeah. this victorious feeling. I mean, it used to be, as far as I remember and as far as I've been told, for a while, it used to be more of a you know tragedy, recalling the tragedy and and uh, yeah, honoring the, the fallen past and stuff mm, kind of mm, a day. Mm, yeah. yeah, yeah, and but that the, the trend towards glorification of the of the victory in the Second World War was already there for a very long time, but after the Crimea annexation, that just the whole propaganda and militarization and, and this, you know, military victory feeling in the atmosphere which has been pumped up by the government in like many faults, you know, mm-hmm. that just poof, dramatically yeah. jumped. And uh, so I remember on one of the on one of the years, I guess it was 2017 or 18 or something, on, on the 9th of May, we wanted to do something else as an kind of an act of opposition to what was going on 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 the streets and squares. So instead, we gathered all the anti-military activists we found in St. Petersburg. Back then, I was living in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a lot. I mean, there were maybe 40, 50 of us. uh, And some initiatives weren't even anti-military or anti-war. I mean, some of them, well, there is, there was not such thing as anti-war pacifist movement mm. in Russia mm. as a coherent mm. thing. Mm. But there were definitely initiatives who kind of fall into this category once they start, you know, thinking in this framework. For instance, mm. there were the movement of uh, conscientious objectors mm. Mm. Uh, for people who try to not go to the, you know, to military. Uh, yeah. yeah, there was a project called the Irene's fires which basically was an art project after the Crimean annexation for people to try to you know in in the art form express mm. their protest against what was going on uh there were the soldiers mothers project and there is still who also tried to help those recruited re- recruits in the army uh the well feminists obviously were kind of into Part the of topic mm-hmm. uh lgbtq movement also kind of got involved obviously and there was this vibe which connected us even though many of us didn't call ourselves anti-military or anti-war or pacifist movement and so we were just brainstorming and and connecting and trying to build the network which i guess wasn't there before so it was also the time this initiative started to meet and network and build connections and, and and somehow feel together which i feel i mean that's not thanks to just me doing a couple of that events obviously that was a trend but now when the invasion started and many people migrated and left the country i see that those communities and movements and teams which were you know apart they consolidated and they started feeling themselves like a like a coherent movement 
which right. I guess was already preparing in these years. It was mm. going on for a while. And it, es- and it basically escalated uh, uh, 22 yeah. onwards. Yeah, uh, obviously. Because kind of had, they kind of had to. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Then I remember I had this very interesting event I attended as a, as a well, participant, but also one of the, one of the uh, you know, trainers. So there was this, uh, they called it the peace training mm-hmm. as opposed to the military training. So it was a project uh, initiated by a Swedish peace activist, one of the leaders of the Swedish uh, pacifist movement. His name is Pele. And so that was the time when the, those who could identify as peace activists from Sweden, Finland, Russia, and Ukraine got together mm-hmm. for two years. That was, that was happening, to, uh, that, that gathering. Wow. And that was very interesting. I mean, like meeting together, discussing, being in this group process of on the one side feeling that we ought to be and we inevitably need to be. Well, there is, there is an interesting paradox we found out there. On the one side, as a peace movement, we can only be a peace movement if we are global, if we are international, if we yeah. are not restricted to our countries, but if we are opposed the war as a as a means to you know to do to 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 do business between countries and between communities and people globally. Yeah. So there cannot be Russian peace movement or Ukrainian peace movement or American peace movement. It, it could be only peace movement as a whole. So it's immediately it's very it's it's antithetical to to nationalism just by its nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah by its yeah, nature, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, the only way peace movement can influence what's going on is by influencing its it, it in their own countries mm. Mm. and opposing the military rhetoric and politics in their own countries. Well, mm. in the democratic countries, they can do it by just you know. Uh, acting and lobbying and and trying to influence the societal opinions and stuff in other countries, they well have to find different solutions. But they can only do it in their own countries. Yeah. And therefore, in each and in, in single country, they will be treated as the traitors and as those serving the other, the other countries. Side. Yeah, that's right. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. So we had these peace activists in Sweden being called the traitors and servants of Putin mm. and peace activists in Russia being treated and called the servants of NATO, mm. even though mm. we were like the same movement. So that that's also kind of an inevitable dilemma here. Yeah. And that's why it was also important to meet together and to see it as a whole. I wonder how you see that as a psychologist, because to me that it, there's a lot of social psychology in that and a sense of group belonging, social identity, now all of these kind of things that uh, the, the narratives that you have to embrace if you are to feel a sense of belonging uh, uh, or if you are to belong, then you even have to accept all of these additional narratives, some of which you might not even agree with, but you do that at the cost of uh, not being ostracized. Because I imagine, if you, in particular, and, and this is perhaps leading to a question uh, uh, about the circumstances in Russia right now, I imagine if you publicly speak against the war and the invasion, there's a high risk of being ostracized, even if there is a number of people that might hear you who might quietly agree with you. Because if you are, you, you know, it, it, it's the, the exit costs are so great that that keeps people locked in to a particular narrative. I wonder what you think as a psychologist uh, uh, about that, uh, but also 
maybe then we can transition into what you see in Russia at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I could say that if you publicly speak about, against the war in Russia today, it's not just high risk that you're going to yeah. be ostracized. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well, it kind is, of yeah. it's prison. inevitability. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Well, no, 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 not really. Mm -hmm. For sure, you're going to be ostracized. That's like not question. Right. It's not a chance. It's, it's, it, it will happen. Yeah. For sure, there will be those who support you quietly or like less quietly or more quietly. That's also for sure. And then there is, and, and then there is a chance you'll get to prison. So right. you see, I do this whole work. It's not really public in a sense that I go to the news and media yeah. and, and, you know, and scream about it and here it is. But neither do I really have a huge concern of hiding it. Mm, okay. So for instance, this open forums I do, mm -hmm. I kind of make a public post and just send it to the to the channels which are close to me and with the people I know and more or less familiar. And I say, you know what, you can you can forward it to the people you also know or to the channels and groups you also know and, and let other people come. So it's like kind of this semi-public domain where you don't yeah. just post it out for everyone to see, but neither do you really hide it because you want to find this balance. Mm. Otherwise, which also happened to this open forums, just the same people, like-minded, who trust each other and know each other keep coming and then you are enclosing yourself in this a selective bubble, group yeah. yeah yeah which i guess one of the uh you know that in a sense that is the biggest trend something that is hardest to overcome in the modern russia as far as i see well many things as well obviously but this enclosure in your bubble, informational bubble, and those who are with you. Well, previously it was like maybe on different topics, but nowadays that's, you know, that's, that's the topic. Yeah. Yeah. So all of us just are so much in this bubble that it takes so much effort, even if you dare to try to get out of it, not in a sense, I mean, you, you, it's easy to get out. You just go to the streets and, and, and you see, for instance, me being in this anti-war bubble. I leave the I, I leave the apartment. I see the posters. I see the propaganda, TV people talking on on that. But it's so difficult to really approach and get into any kind of relationships once you see this split. Mm. So relation re relationally speaking, we are all in, the, in these bubbles, and we mostly most of us, I would say, kept intimate relationships only with those with whom we are on the same page here. And interestingly, once you get into this bubble of, let's say, anti-war people, those who support the war or support the regime are sure to be ostracized there once they speak publicly as well. Yeah. So I guess and ways. everyone just feel it in the air. I mean, that's once you're somewhere, you, you're more or less sure what kind of attitude is here in the group. Hey. It's like pro-war, it's anti-war, so you don't dare to speak otherwise. Hey. And that's a huge civic polarization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go on. No, I was just going to say, you probably won't be surprised to hear that uh, that kind of the bubbling effect and the, the kind of stovepiping of, of information, it's not just a Russian problem, it's a global problem. Uh, you know, we see this everywhere, right, with these kind of uh, uh, competing narratives 
and 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 in this post-truth world where everything can be true, where there's evidence for every side of the debate, every point of view, uh, and everyone's opinion uh, is equally valuable, uh, or or equal, or, or or can be shared as wide and as publicly uh, as the next person's. And I guess that's a that's a that's a problem partially due to technology, but also because we've been globally left disappointed by our political elite. So, you know, you made the point uh, about Russians and people like yourself who've stopped believing in politics uh, or stopped believing in the politics actually acting in the interest of the people, uh, which is, I think, something that uh, broadly resonates with, certainly will with most of my Western audience, uh, that there is this kind of, uh, uh, that's the kind of populist uh, movement is to resist and stand up against the betrayals, so to say, uh, of the political elite. In Russia, I guess, uh, there's a layer over the top of that uh, that is, yeah, yeah, there is the cost yeah. that comes with standing up. Uh, so maybe my question is then, you know, get, gauging what, knowing what you know about Russian society, especially given that you live uh, in Moscow, you know, how, how big is this movement that, I'm, or, how, or how many people actually believe that the war is unjust, that the war shouldn't go on, and would identify as, I guess, anti-war, broadly speaking? How, how prominent mm. is that opinion? Well, uh, no one can really say as of now, because of obvious reasons, you cannot really conduct a comprehensive research. Yeah, to, yeah. And, and once you try to just, you know, calculate your own feeling about it, well, you are just judging by your own bubble. Your own bubble. So, yeah. Well, more or less, uh, the independent research groups, which I know and more or less trust, which were trying to somehow estimate it in the, in the last year, I would say. Uh, they tend to say that we have this 20, 15 to 20 percent active war supporters, 15 sure. to 20 percent active war opposers, and then the rest who are more or less indifferent and just want, you know, the life to be normal as it was once again. So the standard bell curve applies. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kind S of. Yeah. 68 percent just, uh, you know, just close your eyes and uh, and try to ignore as much as you can. Yeah, then obviously there is a tendency that on the one side, uh, many of those who are against the war left the country. And mm. so they are within the informational field, within the, I mean, they keep it, the connections and stuff, but still they're out of country. And then those who support the war obviously occupy like 95% of the official public domain. Would it be media, TV, news, uh, any public kind of spaces and platforms, events, well, censorship piece yeah. has obvious dynamics and mechanics here. Yeah, yeah. So we have this asymmetry. Yeah. And then there are all these, I mean, those are just two labels, right? Well, three labels. Yeah. Against, pro, or indifferent. Yeah. But then obviously there are these shades and colors and all the different pictures in between. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I can talk more about them, but but if if no, the please do, please do because I think that's a, I really do think that's an important aspect of because that's it's ultimately going to be those that are you know the marginals that are going to eventually shift the narrative one way or the other, right? Because because there there are as you said, you know, there are the 10, 15 percent competing on either side, the extremes, so to say, uh, and it's going to be the the swing voters uh, that are ultimately going to you know push the narrative one way or the other. So it'd be keen to hear you know, yeah. about them, who they are and what, what, 
what's keeping them locked into their in their own bubbles or or not allowing them to step out into the other bubbles yeah well uh, uh let's say for for instance uh if you try to imagine this uh war supporters camp yeah. initially this picture comes to mind of uh i, I guess it's also a picture but by, by largely drawn and pictured by the anti-war people and and like just at each other putting labels on each other yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the picture comes to mind of this just propaganda brainwashed uh critical thinking absent yeah. people mostly elders and that's to some extent true i mean i've just recently had a old lady who is a very uh active uh well current also kind of an activist of the of the local area i live in here in moscow who tries to lobby opening new social centers here and there and maybe you know getting better infrastructure and, mm -hmm. and stuff and uh so she came to promote voting for the leading party at the upcoming elections here in moscow and i was like um i'm sorry i cannot vote for the party because i think those are the party of the people who voted for war and genocide and and war crimes and stuff so <laughs> it really doesn't make much sense to me and she was like oh no why do you believe that and i was like and why do you believe that she's like well but you know because uh, putin said so because tv said so and that was just completely within this picture and she was a very kind and good and, and yeah. you know good intended lady who just follows the narrative which she, she hears from the from the news and tv and stuff and that's that fits the picture okay then there are people who are actually quite intelligent and who have access and who do read different kind of news and 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 media and sources on information and they are not that stupid to just believe what the uh defense ministry in russia says and everything else is fake they are i mean they know that yeah. from both sides there are fakes and that this is happening and this is happening and they are actually and sincerely i mean that wasn't there before as far as i observed but something triggered in this group which turned out to be quite large about this feeling of patriotism and uh greatness and uh some kind of mission russia is onto and interestingly enough that the understanding of what that mission is might differ among them but they share this authentic i would even say sentiment very much yeah. and they actually leave their jobs go to the front line volunteer there uh, they donate money and stuff and and they do it i mean and and then they have these blogs and etc etc there are not many of them but i encountered one of them on the on the recent event i've been to yeah, he was a public speaker there because it was also a state yeah. sponsored event and i was observing there and as much as i hated what that person did and said i cannot deny how sincere he was in that yeah yeah and then there are people for instance a friend of mine who is also very intelligent and never did he support the putin regime and he actually worked his own life in the domains of 
building horizontal communities, giving power back to the people and to the communities, uh, working in alternative education. So never did he support the Putin regime, never did he support the autocracy. He understands it all, yet he is triggered by the war and in a way supports it because it so happened that from 2014 until the invasion, he encountered some Ukrainians who had to flee Ukraine, which also happens, and that's also there, who actually encountered, uh, well, being, being ostracized up to the point of violence for their pro-Russian or even just pro-Russian language position in Ukraine. Right. Well, I assume that those are rather rare cases, but this person just encounter, encountered them one by one. And so mm. that molded Created you know, a narrative this feeling in his which, mind. Yeah. No. And uh, so, yeah, the, the, so, so, so in a sense, that's a diverse, diverse group. Yeah. And I guess that's what makes it more difficult to, to I guess, unpack uh, and challenge because there are so, and, and, and again, it's interesting. And I wonder what you think. I mean, it, it seems to me, and I, and I know there's research to back this up, that the moment one's identity is threatened, that identity galvanizes. You know, and we saw this in Ukraine especially as well, right? I mean, the, the moment Ukrainian identity was threatened, certainly in the, certainly post-February uh, last year, it became stronger than ever. And the sense of one... True. And, 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 and I wonder if that's what you're describing there as well in the Russian context, which is not something that we dare to contemplate in the West, that this is part of the natural human reaction is to, you know, rally around the flag. In a sense. And one could even argue that, well, that's a risky thing I'm going to say, uh, that just as Russia, in a very violent way, served Ukraine in solidifying their identity and their sense of belonging and their, and their readiness to actually, you know, serve for the country and, and yeah. I mean Ukraine as far as I feel maybe that's also just shaped by by my Ukrainian friends whom I listen to and, and share some sentiment with them but Ukraine also all the horrors it's going through right now it has a huge transformation potential yeah. partly due to the war and before and, and because the nation got solidified and, and all that and what could one could even argue that in a sense that also served Russian society or, or, or potentially can serve Russian society yeah. because A, that national identity which has been actually kind of marginalized since the fall of the Soviet Union, so it was on a decline and, and there was actually not much for people to unite around. Yeah. Neither the war, the military and like us against them, nor something constructive that we are going to do this or that mm, mm, mm. as a nation mm. like race for the moon or Build things like that yeah. i mean like yeah, this. Yeah. 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 yeah yeah or or just even engaging in the way we built our society i mean this depolitization and being staying out of politics mm, and mm. this bystander syndrome kind of a thing mm, that's also mm. part of that mm. we don't feel as one so why bother yeah 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 and the war also obviously, well, the war, what, what, what did it do? It also triggered this sense of unity within Russian society. And unfortunately, that mostly got 
well usurped i don't know <laughs> by the war supporters yeah and that's what what the war opposers face as a challenge now i mean they also want to play on that sense of unity on that like okay we can change it we can do it together mm. but there is a feeling that this whole sense of belonging to the country to the nation and and being in in right of representing it and and being together is kind of on that side yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it belongs to them only mm. and there is even i mean among the war opposers there is even this hidden feeling that it's been stolen from us yeah you know yeah the right to be patriotic is stolen from us the country is stolen from us so it's there and and like another thing is that it actually i mean one could even say there is a civic war going on in russia right now because of how huge this polarization is yeah, yeah. i mean it's not violent at the moment but in a sense it's only not violent because it's pressured down and you know by by the censorship and everything but the polarization which is so huge is there and i guess it's been there and the word triggered it to be more open to be more visible yeah. so it's like you know the wound which was hidden and then it bursts out yeah, yeah. and that's painful and potentially even lethal but that's also relief and a way for body to heal mm, mm. might be might be or might right. not become that's right yeah yeah might be to get depending on how it unfolds that's absolutely right I, I find him right I really find it interesting this 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 tension between the two sides that one side the nationalist side is perceived as the one that represents the state the the and, it's captured it's stolen the flag and yeah. it has taken the flag as the symbol of the nation whereas those who oppose the war are now anti-flag or anti that particular history culture uh you know they're the, they're the sellouts uh, and and that tension i mean i i think that's that that tension is relevant again globally particularly as this kind of um right. populist movement rises right. uh, but of course in russia we're seeing that manifest in a much more brutal way uh towards uh their neighbor you made you made the point that it's even, hard to, i mean the, the yes, flag the flag is very and just the flag is very ironically symbolic here because you you might have heard of it uh when the anti-war movement or those who left the country started to try to you know gather and assemble in in different countries say happens to be and uh one of the biggest well organization out of them so they came up with this new flag of russia uh. which was white and blue but without red symbolizing huh. that we are denying the you know the violence and stuff the that blood, represents yeah. leaving only blue and and, and white which is good and and <laughs> I mean non-violent and all that the idea is good but basically what they say is that we are not them mm. we are not Russia we don't want yes. that flag we are something different yeah. Yeah. and one and I mean unless you are powerful enough to actually build such a huge new thing which can replace the old yeah. you're just denying it yeah and you're saying okay we are separate yeah so yeah. so so you're not really changing anything at the core you're merely removing yourself from having a seat at the table right because you're, you're because it's so painful to be there yeah. it's so painful to be identified with that so you rather just break it break but it then down. your chance to change it also gets wasted mm. and it's also coming from you know it's also uh, uh, the resistance one feels from the rest of the world or at least certainly the western world you know if you gather somewhere with a russian flag 
even as an anti-war movement, you will immediately yep, be associated yep, yep. with the pro-war yeah, movement. Mm. Yeah. 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 You made an interesting point about the censorship. And again, that's something that we hear about and talk about and perhaps even have an idea or can visualize what that means. But it'd be interesting to hear what censorship means in Russia. What does that look like? When you say you walked outside and you see the propaganda and the posters, again, most of us have a vague idea of what that is, but perhaps it'd be useful to hear from you how broad, how all-encompassing that is and what it actually means to the everyday Russian, to, the per to that grandma that you mentioned, to the old lady that you mentioned, and everyone else around, or, or at least you know, the 68%, the middle, that's just kind of sticking their head in the sand. What does that look uh, like to them? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me see. I guess there are a couple of layers here. One is that the government hugely funds and therefore occupies the public space with the propaganda in different mediums from posters to TV shows and videos and everything. Most of them, I would say that actually once you go to the street, most of them are not even propaganda of like, you know, those Ukrainians are, yeah, you know, yeah. deserve to be and stuff. It's uh, mostly just them trying to recruit people to the army because that's something they're struggling with. Yeah. So nowadays in Moscow, for instance, you have these posters of, uh, hey, join the army on literally every single organization, the cafeteria, the shop, like anything, just every door, the local administrations, they come to the owners, they give them the posters and they say, you have to post it. So it's just like, and once you just watch the billboards, I guess half of the billboards are basically the promotion of joining the army, uh. which kind of shows how much nervous and anxious they are about recruitment yeah. and mobilization because they also are very anxious about still rolling out another wave of uh, general large-scale mobilization because that obviously frightens people and that destabilizes the regime and, and the regime still holds on being passive so it yeah. still doesn't want people to be active even if they are actively supporting the war. It still prefers them to be just, you know, leave us to our own thing. Yeah. So that's one layer. And then obviously once, I, I mean, I haven't watched TV in years, so I cannot be a direct uh, yeah. uh -huh. direct witness. But from what I hear, TV is just like 99% fueled with this huge propaganda. And most of that is, uh, well, I don't have words to describe it. The last time I watched some of those shows just as a, as a, you know, out of curiosity, yeah. uh, I cannot really imagine how a normal human being could watch it because it's just so much fueled by hatred, by uh, hysteria. Yeah. Uh, it's just nonsense. But then TV is researched to be the main media source, mostly for the elderly people only. Yeah. And most of the rest, you know, just use different sources. And then there is legal and, well, obviously then there is a criminalization of any public uh, opposition to war. There are a couple of laws and they can basically get you to prison for uh, a couple of decades at worst. Uh. 
And it's really unclear how massive this is. I mean, there were obviously waves, especially in the beginning when there were the protests and then a couple of waves after that when huge amounts of people got into prison. And then they kind of, as far as I understand and see, they kind of try to, you know, keep everyone alert. <laughs> so they put one person in jail every couple of months for a decade. And you cannot really say that one person a month is a lot, but since it's public, and so, you know, that's just a way to threaten. Mm. Yeah, well, if it's, if it's publicized and if everyone knows, then uh, it's... it's, it's the, the, the and the thing, you, you cannot really, you, you can't predict. You can be a politician who has a huge social capital who are against the war and then you're a prison, but then you can be just a father of a girl who drew a Ukrainian flag in school and then the father got jailed and is still in jail and uh, he's sentenced for a decade or so and his daughter is uh, given to the orphanage. Or you could be a shop owner who also, you know, drew the flag on the on, on, on his shop. Or, I mean, you can't, it's yeah. unpredictable. Yeah. It's, there is, Which is what makes it scary. There seems to be yeah. no... Yeah. Yeah, but Which that's was, part of it. Yeah, that's part of it, right? Keep, keeping then, the uncertainty alive. But then, yeah. but then it doesn't. Right, right, right. Yeah. But then, still, it doesn't seem to be massive, at least at the time, when you just yeah. see, you know, hundreds and thousands of people being jailed every month, and so it's. But well, there are no protests. Yeah. If there would be, then the picture might be different. And then there is technical censorship, which is, well, they basically legally closed all the independent media, and then they try to technically ban them. I mean, put the, put the blog, the websites and applications and stuff so you can only access them through VPN. Sure. And that also shrinks their audience. And then they try to block VPNs as well nowadays. Uh, rumors say in the last couple of days that they are trying to block YouTube as the Facebook is already blocked. And VPNs keep, you know, dying because this protocol is now blocked, this protocol is now blocked, and people who keep, uh, I mean, those who want to keep their access to those sources of information, they can, but that takes more and more effort. And then more and more technical know-how. More and more technical know-how, and then there are obviously, and, and that's a very good example, I guess, that's something which we kind of took on from the Belarus experience, more and more teams are developing decentralized yeah. VPN tools for people to access information. So it's free and they're coming up with a new technical solutions and stuff. And it's like, those are social projects. Those are not private corporate yeah. VPNs, which are meant to make money from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And many of the teams I know who are developing these tools they are the teams consisting of Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarus uh, engineers and, and software guys within the team. Doing well, it as a social country. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a social yeah. And what about the um, what is the impact of the casualties, right? Because we, at least in the West, hear figures of up to two hundred thousand. Uh, you know, if 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 not dead, but certainly wounded. I mean, these are serious numbers. Numbers that one would expect would uh, hit home in Russia as to the yeah. severity of this war, if nothing else but just the number of sons and perhaps even daughters 
of Russia that are being killed inevitably on foreign land. How is that received? Are those numbers even remotely publicly acknowledged or whispered even amongst no, the people? not at all. No, no, okay. Publicly, it's all completely hidden. There are only the numbers published by the Ministry of Defense, which is like, I know what they say, 20, just a couple of yeah. people that... Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah not even... Yeah. Uh, it's kind of whispered, but that's, well, that's obviously censored, but that also feels kind of a taboo in in society. One of the reasons, I guess, is that most of the, well, a huge amount, huge percentage of the recruits were actually from the remote regions of mm -hmm. the country for different reasons, for the financial incentives and stuff. And they mostly tried to keep the huge cities and especially Moscow and St. Petersburg, well, more or less intact, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and those remote regions, they also don't have, you know, much capacity for protests or anything. They're like... And here it is. Individually speaking, when you just, you know, well, I, I watched a couple of interviews, for example, with mothers whose sons die. And, and then there are all very diverse picture of how it happens. There are mothers uh, literally rescuing their sons yeah. who, by ignorance, got involved on the front line, just like literally rescuing them on the time they were on, on the rotation and, and you yeah. know, them hiding them and stuff. And then there are those who are like, yeah, UK, but, but well, he served the nation. Perhaps that was for a reason. At least we get the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also there. Yeah, yeah. Uncomprehensible to me and to many, but true. Yeah. But mostly that's somewhere below the even semi-public you know, what people whisper on the streets and, and talk to each other about. Yeah, so, see, that's yeah. interesting. That, that, I think that's a... But then, but that's, that's part no, of the no, no one believes the, the numbers by the Ministry of Defense. Like, everyone is sure there are many people who are dead. No, right. That's the overall feeling. It's yeah. just that we don't talk about what it implies. Yeah, because it implies action. <laughs> and action is costly. Action comes with exit costs that are perhaps too great and risks that are perhaps too great uh, to take, especially if you're in this six, you know, this kind of middle sixty to seventy percent that is largely unaffected by the war. I mean, broadly speaking, I imagine everybody is to an extent affected. Uh, but if your son is not fighting, if your son is not dying, if your daughter is not dying, what is the impact of the kind of more recent drone attacks, uh, even in Moscow and Saint Petersburg and and, and other 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 regions uh, in Russia? Is this yeah. bringing I guess the war closer to home to those who remain with their head in the sand? Surprisingly not. And that shocks me, to be honest. Wow. Okay. You know, one of the first drones that flew into Moscow actually blew up a couple of kilometers from the place I stay. Wow. Okay. And well, okay, I'm, I'm anti-war and pacifist activist. So I had this very weird feeling of, on the one hand, feeling kind of insecure that the next day it might fly and blow up in, into my balcony, which yeah. I guess wouldn't be so pleasant. <laughs> but there is also a part of me which is like, yeah, you know, let it happen. Yeah, 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 <laughs> At yeah. least it, it comes here and we see that it's actually happening, not somewhere in, you know, in the distant place, but uh, yeah, yeah. at least that will wake people up and 
but then most of them it was and obviously the narrative and the the strategy in the news was also mostly to try to talk it down mm-hmm. so they didn't use it to fuel propaganda even more like you know those ukrainians mm-hmm. need to unite no they try to nothing's happening it's all fine wow wow and i guess it's different for for the people living in the in the bransk region closer to the border because they're being attacked every day and there are people dying like every you know every month and they're also out of public discourse mm. so it's like you know it's it's happening there we don't care mm. so what does it look like from your perspective what what is how does this unfold from your view All right, there is a something in 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 the process work psychology they call it the high dream which is kind of a hope but not just a you know rational one but something you can aspire to and that mm. also has some intuition in it mm. so there is a hope that once this cup which has been placed on the social frictions and polarization and conflicts within the society is taken off for some reason it could be the fall of regime it could be the defeat in the war but the regime staying it could be something else but there is this high dream that it might happen in some recent future mm-hmm. and then if that happens that's going to be naughty that's not going to be nice and beautiful for sure it's not that the regime is falling now finally we are free and we can build democracy and yeah, yeah, be in yeah. peace with each other and with the world now that's i mean with such a level of tension and polarization in society and that's where i guess this civic facilitation in a broad sense is going to be urgently needed yeah. to try to make these bridges and to build and foster dialogue within society which is polarized so it's one thing to try to foster it within the society where it's censored and put down and it's a different thing when it's the the you know the the wound is burst out Ugh. and now you need to deal with it the and that's why we started this course as well yeah 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 and all the tensions which were there already Ugh. yeah Ugh. and then there is also feeling that we well to be honest it's really hard to foresee this change in the nearest future because it seems so encycled i mean no. the war itself doesn't change in the last well a year i would say with no not not much changes on the front line and being this what they call it situational battles and stuff and within within the country within society also it's only you know the knot is getting even tighter in a sense mm-hmm. there's one other thing i want to pick up before we get to the the this social kind of dialogue initiatives and mm-hmm. that is i mean just recently i I've, i think it was actually yesterday or the day before that i saw uh, well two things that spring to mind firstly that now it's going into uh high schools that high school students are now being mm-hmm. trained in the use of kalashnikovs hand grenades and uh uavs or, or drones uh, that's what that's one uh, question i have whether that is whether you've heard that if, if that's true and, and and how is that perceived yep. more broadly uh or how is it you know interpreted what is it what does it say to the everyday russian when this is i guess back in schools because we know of this from 
you know, World War II, etc. Um, so, so what is this actually saying to to the Russian population? But secondly, also uh, even just today, today is the the eighth of September. Uh, I just saw of, uh, on the news that there's whispers of perhaps the Kremlin considering, as in you know, members of the Kremlin considering deposing Putin. Whether there's any truth to that, maybe not even today, but in the kind of uh, uh, near future. Uh, perhaps your your thoughts on those two points. Well, first. They were getting it to schools and even kindergarten and universities for the last, well, well, since the beginning of invasion, like largely on oh, a wow. large scale. And before that, since 2014, you know, maybe a, a little bit slower. Right. And I mean, from propaganda, we see children in the kindergarten. Well, I mean, those perhaps also are exceptional cases. It's not something which is happening everywhere in every single kindergarten, but we've seen these pictures of children in the kindergarten being put in this Z, Z letter oh, and, right. and in the military uniform and stuff. And in schools, they have it, they have uh, for two years now, they have this additional lesson, which is to be conducted weekly for everyone, which is called discussions on the important things. Uh which is supposed to be the propaganda talks. Yeah. And then they changed the school books this year, the history book, the, uh, what they call it, civic science, uh-huh. and I guess something else. Well, basically they also changed it all with the propaganda. They put the chapters on the, on the current invasion, which they call the special operation and stuff, and, you know, fascism and Ukraine and all that. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, there were many laughters about it. Also, in the in the exams on the civic science for the high school students, they took out the questions about democracy. <laughs> Which wow! Is like, I mean, but the, that's just how how absurd it is. And then in, in the universities, they also have it. They have these talks. They have uh, well, obviously, they have students being expelled if they demonstrate their anti-war, anti-Putin position and stuff like that also for a couple of years now and, and teachers and some of the teachers who have been expelled in the in the last couple of years and left the country they already organized this horizontal informal self organized independent universities and they now give lectures and talks and then the government censors them and tries to put them down and stuff and call them the foreign agent and the prohibits the organization for instance one of the the free university, which is which is from those teachers and uh, from academia who has been ex- expelled, they are now this year uh, called extremists, and it's illegal to engage with them in any way. Stuff like that. Um, wow. Yeah, and and the military training itself, also, I guess the law is passed that from this year is going to be in schools, and then it's always a question of how it's implemented. Because now, you know, you try to pass it uh, top-down from the government and then it's implemented in all the different ways depending on school, depending on teachers. Then some teachers just also, you know, try to boycott those lessons or try to talk about something else there because it's kind of vague what you consider to be important and talks about the important stuff. And uh, But some do and some follow it. And 
some students follow it and some students oppose the teachers and they record the video and, and audio and they spread it publicly within the teenagers and stuff. So that all is happening. So internal internal policing, so to say, or, or, or internal moderation. Which is both ways. Yeah. I mean, on one way, if you are a teacher who dare to, you know, start talking about the critical thinking and something against the war, you can re record it and as internal police, you know, someone will sh shot a video of you and send to the to the government or vice versa. You could be a teacher who starts to put propaganda on children and children will record it and they will spread it and they will laugh at you. Well, obviously, they mm. there is no mm. one to... Uh, to arrest you, <laughs> to put yeah. sanctions, mm. yeah, to, mm. yeah, yeah, but but mm. but I mean, they just publicly laugh at you, mm. which also mm. is happening. And children overall turned out to be more resilient to propaganda that many than many assumed. Mm. So most mm. of them, especially teenagers, were like, "What the shit are you talking about? Mm. Do you really expect us to believe that?" I right, mean, differs, but but there is a. A significant portion and of then them. most of them yeah yeah true and yeah. and i mean the the effort itself is huge and it's everywhere yeah. the pressure is everywhere and uh you cannot really i mean then children got to express their opinions in hidden ways secretly not publicly otherwise they are also at risk of being expelled or their parents being imprisoned as it happened with some of them the and then I guess most of the parents who are against war and against the regime but have to stay in the country, they try to somehow just, you know, protect the children from that. Either talk with them about, okay, this is going to happen in school, but you don't have to attend. We are going to write this letter that you are sick and you will not attend the lessons and stuff like that. Or they just take children out of schools. It's actually been, well, not huge, but significant increase of children going to the family education, so getting out of school and transitioning oh. to the home education instead. Like homeschooling, yeah, okay. In the last wow. two years. Wow, so, wow, wow. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, there are so many different aspects of, 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 of this that are concerning, worrying, especially when it's, the oppression is so It's interesting, big. just... Yeah. Please go. It's almost an anecdote here. Last year, I was also on the event working with the with the administration of the pedagogical universities. Yeah. And that was the time they introduced the law that uh, now the pedagogical universities need to prepare students to be in this new position, which is called, I guess, uh, how do you translate it? N not educational activities. Well, basically the kind of heads of uh, upbringing and, and value-based and propaganda, if you read, you know, in between the lines right. in schools. Yeah. And so, therefore, pedagogical universities need to prepare their students to uh, be in that positions. And all of them, in one, on, on the one hand, were super excited about it. Because that's something, turns out, many within the government system, and I mean not the officials, but the schools, let's say, or the universities, yeah. turns out many actually need some kind of coherent value-based ideology to unite us so much and they're like yeah finally we can work on that finally we can not just you know upbring cynical people who are just after making careers and money but actually find out something that unites us together 
And once they start talking about it, even through the law kind of implies this propaganda and war and stuff, they're like, yeah, we will talk about how they can create social projects and change the society and make us a more democratic country and do this and that and social enterprises and, you know, and make it a more just community and be self-independent, critical thinkers who can collaborate and work in teams and all that good stuff. And then someone comes from the officials and like, here is what, what, what they've got to do. And they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. And I'm not sure how exactly that, that combines in there, right? but that. <laughs> yeah, the cognitive dissonance like, must be great. We great. need ideology. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're like, we need ideology. We want ideology. We want something to unite us. Okay, let us talk about ideology. No, no, no. We'll just wait for someone to put it on us from, from, from above. There. So there is this need, which is, I guess, sincere, authentic, and actually very healthy and for well individuals and for yeah. society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And well-intentioned for sure. And then there is fear I mean, that's a good thing if they would actually discuss and talk and have this dialogue about what kind of ideology they could have, which they would like to translate to their pupil and, and children and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. instead... They wait, they wait to be served they, the narrative, and, yeah. And they are, for some reason, well, I more or less understand why, but they are afraid to go into the dialogue when I, as a moderator, tried to, you know provoke them into the dialogue of what kind of ideology you would like to create they were like no 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 let's not go there there because it's not authorized hmm. okay again the price is too high the price for speaking one's own critical mind is perhaps too high and and this is perhaps a good way to pivot to to this kind of civic dialogue in society that you that you run and and create uh, with your with the open forums uh, so, 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 what are open forums? Firstly, uh, and what do you, what are you achieving? Who is attending open forums? Why do they attend? What do they hope to achieve? And then, of course, you know, what are, what are the challenges? What are you, you know, what, what are some of your concerns about these open forums? Yeah, yeah. Well, so long story short, open forum is a format from the process-oriented psychology, which is a branch of uh, psychodynamic psychological approach created mm -hmm. by Arnold Mindel. Mm -hmm. And that's basically a format where you have the dialogue between people, but and and that's a way to have a heated dialogue on something which, you know, you have conflict around or tension around. So it's not, you know, a peaceful topic. Mm -hmm. uh, and a way to have it where you focus not only on what people think and their rational arguments, so it's not a debate. Mm -hmm. You also focus on feelings which are considered to be important, but you also focus on something they call the roles in the field. So you don't just see the particular people with their opinions and feelings as individuals, but also the roles that people occupy. Yeah. And they get into this group or that group, this role or that role, and sometimes they can even change, and sometimes they can even change within the format. When you, say, when you say roles, Which do you mean specific yeah. roles in society that they feel, or, or identities and that they embody, that they, that they represent? More or less identities, but you could also call them voices. Yeah, uh -huh. You could call them, yeah, societal, yeah, 
avatars voices. Yeah, 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 yeah. Avatars. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Here is if you go more, you know, esoteric kind of, and uh, they also have something they call ghost roles. For instance, opinions or feelings or voices which are tabooed or censored or unpopular or you cannot really pronounce them or they are not present within this group, but they also influence the dialogue and they influence the conversation. And then someone, for example, the facilitator or some of the participants can actually occupy the troll mm. and speak on behalf of the troll. So not only my own mind, but mm. see this kind of thing. Mm, mm, mm. Great, and, great. Uh, so the story, it started with the, with the invasion uh, first couple of months after the invasion started. International process work psychologists, some of them, they tried to convene global open forums on the Ukrainian war where everyone could attend. Russians, Ukrainians, as well of, as the rest of the people. And after two of them, it got clear that we cannot do it at the moment. The dialogue between Russians and Ukrainians and everyone else just is not going because of obvious reasons it's just and one of the reasons was that well there were people from the ukrainian side and there were people from the russian side but most of all of them were against the war so most of what ukrainians wanted and had to say to the russians was not actually addressed to those people who were present in the forum so it was kind of okay communication what, what yeah. do you mean? How, how, what do you mean by that? As in, I mean, Ukrainians were, you Russians attack us and you think you're a great empire. And and then there are those people in the forum, those Russians in the forum who are against the regime, against the war, and like, uh, well, it's not actually us. And the only thing they could do is try to play the role of yeah. the war supporting Russian or the Putin or whoever, which is, well, well that was needed as well, but not exactly what it the didn't dialogue achieve might what the, like. Yeah, yeah, okay, I understand. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Ukrainians had a space to tell what they needed to tell, and that was important as well to be witnessed by the international community, by the Russians. I mean, that was just the beginning of it. It wasn't unclear and wasn't present everywhere, and it was yeah. waked and in this fog of war for everyone. So it was important. But yeah. then we could see that the dialogue between the countries is not possible at the moment. It's yeah. too hot. Yeah. Yeah. And then within Ukraine, they started to self-organize and they started create beautiful and healthy and, and uh, many places for such dialogue within the Ukrainian support groups, psychological groups, dialogue groups, open forums within the community to talk about the stuff they had. Because, I mean, they weren't united all at once after the invasion hey, started. Hey, it was hey, also hey. a gradual process and there were many of polarizations course. and conflicts and this and that and the conflict between those who left Ukraine and those who stayed and all of that. Yeah. And they had this and they started doing it in, in a very beautiful way. And I had my colleagues, Ukrainian psychologists and process workers who were facilitating these forums and like that was going on there in a very active manner. And it also got sparked because of the invasion. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. suddenly became very relevant yeah. and they had fundraising and, 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 and resources for that. And, stuff. and in Russia, silence. Yeah. Yeah. I just had one person trying to organize such a forum once, but it basically turned out to be just a gathering for people who know each other, like seven of us or something who spoke with each other. And Damn. and the, the atmosphere of silence in society was the most present. And so I felt, okay, I want to break this silence. 
and I want to create the space for this dialogue at least in Russia, within Russia, for Russians, maybe in a similar manner. And first, I invited a, a friend of mine, a colleague, a Swiss uh, process work psychologist. Well, he also has connections to both Russia and Ukraine, but he's conducted seminars in Russia and his wife is Russian, even though they live in, in Switzerland. So the two of us conducted three open forums in summer of 2022. And many people attended. I guess it was up to 80, 90 people at most. Yeah. And because it was so confusing and polarized and hot, I wouldn't really say that we had an actual deep dialogue. It was more of a break in the silence kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 There were people sharing their emotions and their stories and uh, sometimes playing roles, but mostly sharing for, you know, on behalf of themselves. And there were different people, those who are against the war mo mostly, some of them who are, well, if not necessarily supporting the war, but not fitting into the identity of the anti-war activist for sure. And be like, you know, but I actually do love my country and I do want to stay with it. And I don't want to, you know, criticize it for everyone. It is by its nature as many anti-war war activists did at the moment and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was important. And by the end of summer, there was this feeling that, well, that colleague of mine, Reine Hauser, he was like, okay, now I want to take a break. And there was also a feeling that the dialogue was happening, but it kind of was happening under the supervision of someone from outside, yeah, you know, yeah. the Swiss, an old guy with kind of perceived authority, someone helping us to speak to each other. And we felt like, okay, we need to actually be able to talk to each other by ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started doing this open forums bi-weekly, just by myself and sometimes some friends of mine and colleague from Russia joining as co-facilitators. Now, the thing is that most of them, 90% of the attendants were anti-war people. Yeah. Even though I tried to invite them, I tried to keep the space open. I even invited once in a while, you know, intentionally those people I know who are supporting the war to attend, most of them never did. And that's part of that mirror bubble, mi mirror yeah. ostracizing. They feel that once they come, it's insecure for them to be in that space and to speak publicly. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes some of them do come and that was also a point of a dialogue. But mostly that turned out to be a space for dialogue for very different people within with general anti-war position yeah. to talk and work on different things which appear yeah. from the topic of helplessness, which was a huge thing throughout the year. Well, just not seeing what we can do, yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. The topic of uh, guilt, obviously, and many people having hard feelings about feeling guilty and being attacked from all the sides, from the Russian side for, for being traitor, from Ukrainian side for being Russian and like, yeah. There was a topic of 
victory, for instance. On the 9th of May, we did the forum with the topic of victory, where we tried to speak about and feel into what victory actually is for, well, for us. Yeah. Turns out that for those who support the war, it's completely unclear. There is no picture of victory. What exactly should happen for us to perceive it as a victory? And for those against the war as well, what exactly? Russia withdrawing the army from Ukraine. Okay, and then what? But what's victory for us? Not for Ukraine, but for us. The fall of regime and what's next and how it's going to happen. So it's also unclear and there is no, uh -huh. I mean, no one is fighting for victory because there is no image of victory. Uh -huh. Turns out. Uh -huh. And then there was, for instance, a forum on the uh, power and strength of pacifism where we discovered that just as the sense of belonging to the country and patriotism was completely on the on the side of supporting the war, yeah. also the empowerment and the feeling that I, I have power, I have strength to do something is also ki kind of usurped by that camp yeah. and associated with violence. So it's a violent power. Yeah. And those who are against war and for, you know, for peace, they're kind of, well, we cannot exercise power. We don't feel a right to. That's uh, also uh, stolen from us. Uh, and so we had on this how we as, well, pacifists of different kinds can be powerful and strong and not just anemic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how can they be? I mean, I guess given everything we've spoken about so far, you know, the oppressive environment that you find yourself in, where do you draw your power from? Where do you uh, uh, reject the weakness that's being attached to the cause, I guess, from the narratives surrounding your cause? Well, one thing is a very fact you mentioned, like this high risks of me being public in the forum, like here in the podcast, not hiding my name and stuff. That's for me actually a personal way to remain my power to do what can be and feels to be maybe risky, but still to do it, to be publicly against the war. And I mean, once again, I'm not, you know, just going out on the streets screaming yeah. and putting yeah. posters and being in process yeah. and stuff. And it's not so much because we're here, but because I don't see, well, any potential effect from that other than me being jailed. Mm -hmm. But whenever I face this dilemma of fearfully hiding yeah. my position or being open about it, I try to choose and prefer the second one for my own sake, not for justice, not even for like, you know, it, it's not even a moral thing. It's just my way of remaining my power of feeling that I can afford and be courageous enough and powerful enough to do that. So yeah. it's kind of saving myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then trying to go to the other side to have this dialogue and try to understand them and try to see the feelings behind those figures that support the war, which for me is actually much more difficult than, I don't know, just publicly speaking my own position uh, because uh. that triggers me once I encounter it. Of course. And then seeing that figure within me, for instance, 
that last event I mentioned that there was a guy who was very sincere and authentic about his support of the war. He volunteered, went to the front line. He he actually is an ex a marketing specialist and branding specialist and he was talking about how should we in, in within the country now market the war and market patriotism and make the mythology and brand of us as a strong nation based on war and and like he believed in that so sincerely and really? stuff and I couldn't really deny it and I've listened to them to half an hour and I could clearly identify that even though I won't do that, but symbolically and psychologically, I actually want to kill him for what he's doing mm. and for what he's creating. And that's a killer within me mm. Mm. because it's so unbearable to witness and to be present together with, with what he represents and what he is building. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, the, you know, finding the killer within me, finding the one who needs to belong within me, and maybe I choose not to belong to my to to this identity of of the country or the nation, but instead I depend on belonging to the anti-military group and identity, yeah, yeah. or finding uh, the aggression within me, finding a, a savior within me. Actually, there is a part of me which really feels that we need to complete some mission. Well, I would rather prefer this mission to be something more peaceful and constructive. And yeah. <laughs> hey, hey. But, but there is this, uh, and others would actually call it colonialism of hey. me, you know, trying to do something for the whole globe. Who am I to do so? <laughs> which is also partly true. Hey. So finding all these parts and maybe hoping that that might help to build this dialogue between the camps and between the different people and conflicting parties within Russia to see that actually there are there are similar similar intentions and feelings and archetypes that drive us yeah. even though they drive drive us to the opposing sides it's so interesting because again it echoes everything you said right at the start about meeting your Ukrainian counterparts and having this sense of unity and a sense of belonging and togetherness which is then driven apart by one instance, right? And and what you're yeah. describing now is exactly what's happening to you in Russia, where you have yeah, a sense of belonging. Society, yeah. but, but this one narrative, this one perspective, one identity that one chooses to embrace, or, or one is in some way forced to embrace, because if, it's, if, if this is all you hear and this is all you see, then how can we expect an everyday Russian to have the perspective that you have? Somebody who's been exposed to the kind of well, not, not just the psychological dimensions of what, what happens in the mind, but also having met people from various you know, uh, uh, countries, segments of society, having had different perspectives, seen different views. Somebody who hasn't had the luxury of that, it's very easy for us to cast them out and say they're evil, which is what broadly happens in the West, right? This is very... Uh, right. Uh, right. It's very easy in the West... Uh, uh, there's a tendency to think that every uh, that all Russians are culpable and guilty and all Russians are evil. And of course, that's not the case. The lady, the old lady you mentioned during our discussion, a nice, lovely lady, but that doesn't mean that she's serving a cause that is ultimately bringing out very, very bad outcomes for everybody involved. She doesn't think so. 
You know, that, that's why the old adage, you know, the, the path to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Yeah. It, it, it is so true in these kinds of circumstances. Is, there, is it even possible or how do you measure the impact of your initiatives? Is this even possible that you can measure any kind of impact or, or how, uh, uh, how far reaching it is? Uh, how many people are you able to touch uh, and, and even give them, create a bumper in their mind that perhaps, perhaps one in 10 might think about things differently? That's a tough one. And uh, on a bad day, yeah. I feel that my impact is close to zero and I'm impacting nothing yeah. and I'm just in my illusions of trying to do something and I just can bear helplessness, which is actually here. Yeah. And I yeah. guess to some extent that's true. Yeah. Uh, that most of the people I directly work with or try to influence are already those with anti-military positions, so I'm not yeah. uh, you know, changing the minds of those who are supporting the war. Well, at least maybe I'm, well, not even changing the minds of those who are against the war to be more complex in their perception so that we can build a dialogue, but actually among us all, including me, increasing this complexity yeah. that one day might allow us to embrace the whole polarization and the whole conflict. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a typical challenge and question that is risen in every single civic anti-war democratic kind of gathering I attended or organized in the last couple of years. Should we invite those yeah. in, in, into the dialogue? Yeah, yeah. And there is this huge desire to say no because it's so hard to talk to, to them, with them, and it's not clear what to talk with them about. But then if you don't invite them, Nothing's yeah. happening. Well, you, well, you're missing one so, of those roles, right? You're missing one of those identities in the na in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and it stays. I mean, it, yeah. it, it doesn't doesn't go anywhere. There was yeah. this, uh, there is this uh, famous cartoon which was very famous in the '90s in Russian-speaking part of the world uh, called Masyanya. Mm -hmm. And it's been out for a while. I mean, everyone kind of forgot about it. And after the invasion, the author actually started doing the episodes again now on war he's clearly anti-war pro-ukrainian and it's like political uh sarcastic episodes yeah. and they just highlight this you know these deep intentions that we have so in the end of the of the one of the episodes all the well the good people with the ufos and and help from the aliens they just yeah. put all those who want to have war on the island and they kill each other and stuff so I mean, there is a part of me which actually yeah. wishes this to happen. Yeah, 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 However, yeah. unrealistic and, and, and yeah. And then, like, okay, we actually need to be more mature if we are about to change this. Yeah. So perhaps what I'm trying to achieve with these forums and course and everything is to explore together how we can mature, including me and those I'm working with so that we can change it yeah, or so yeah. that we are changing it. And that also includes how we, for example, within the course are creating the war dynamic within the group yeah. and how these roles are represented and expressed within the group, even though we are all, you know, for civic rights and anti-war and stuff. But then we start have this 
subtle oppression or, or and and then we explore this uh, and to be honest I have no answer how exactly it's gonna influence and if it's gonna influence sure. Sure. and if it influences the status quo right now yeah and the funny thing is that that's something that came to me with with the war and with this work of mine which wasn't there before but i feel that i also matured in a sense that now it's okay for me to keep doing it because i assume that it might be right without knowing or any having anything to assure me that it's right and it's gonna you know yeah. work and influence yeah. like i don't know and it's yeah. okay and still i'm gonna do that yeah. 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 that kind of feeling yeah that's powerful because that's uh comes from deep within oneself so it's not about doing it for someone or as you said before because it's the right thing to do or not the right thing to do it all all of that almost becomes irrelevant it is because it is fueled by intrinsic motivations you know to do something and and if whatever it does is is more than was there before it's it's having a seat at the table it is not letting the narrative be taken from you it is not letting yeah. the flag being taken from you so to speak and for that reason i find everything you're doing so 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 powerful uh, and perhaps one last question to you given the importance of this being a local dialogue in this instance perhaps what you're describing is a internal russian dialogue between the various bubbles in russia to try and find a cohesive whole of what victory looks like, what the future looks like, what ideology we embrace, who we are as a people. How do those outside of Russia, not even Ukraine, but outside of Russia and Ukraine, help you do what you do without tarnishing you with the brush of being anti-Russian, so to speak, right? So, you know, even this podcast, right? I know there will be a portion of those who listen who will say, He's just a, uh, and certainly on Twitter, you know, he is just a, uh, a Kremlin apologist, right? I have no doubt. But then there will be a significant portion of those who, who hear the emotion in your voice and, and recognize the humanity that you represent. They will want to help. How can they do it without making your life harder? <laughs> That's a good one. Hmm. Right, a couple of things. One is, uh, I can imagine, you know, being in a seat of someone actually influencing some initiatives or politics or something in in uh, in whatever country, which tries to support peace. And then it's supporting Ukraine, supporting the Ukrainian army, which I think is the right way to do, the right thing to do. And then isolating Russia with like sanctions and, and all the different ways to isolate it, which is a very understandable thing to do. I mean, once you see this aggressor who is mm -hmm. like just, you know, breaking all the rules and using the power of right of force and stuff, and you just want to isolate yourself from it. Very understandable. I try to do it myself. I try to 
Well, I battle with that, but I try to isolate myself from those supporting the wall. Same. Same. But that's not a sensible thing to do if you really try to influence. So if you instead try to support any kind of civic anti-war dialogue, you know, independent media, VPNs, this kind of initiatives in Russia, and try to keep these bridges, then you are working for perhaps, well, I'm not sure, but yeah, perhaps yeah. you're working against Kremlin and, and for the peace. But you, one needs to be very accurate yeah. here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for me, the examples of the horizontal marginal teams we are, which are creating these projects like VPNs and stuff, which are international teams, usually including Russians, Ukrainians, Belarus people yeah, and yeah. some others. Those are great examples. Uh, that's one thing on the like policy level or stuff, you know. Then it's kind of a metaphor from the therapeutic, psychotherapeutic field, which comes to my mind. But there, what really matters is the role of the witness. Yeah. When, for instance, you work with someone's trauma, it's very powerful if there is a good intended witness that doesn't try to rescue or save or, or uh, you know, banish or punish or whatever, mm. but just with a good intention witnesses the process. Mm. That's like you know the role of the of the surrounding community, witnessing the conflict taking place and trying to be there, be present yeah. and, and, you know, see what's going on without turning away from it. Yeah. So that's more of a symbolical act. It's not clear, you know, what exactly you need to do yeah. to be yeah. a witness. Yeah. But I guess even with the open forums, actually, I think maybe soon, maybe this autumn, if I keep doing them, I will try to invite international witnesses to the process to see if it changes the dynamics. No, not even to participate, but just to observe. Yeah. No. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, there is this very tricky thing that, in a way, I guess, Russian invasion of Ukraine is a part of the global process, after all, of the global polarizations going on. And we mentioned a couple of those, yeah. like, you know, mistrust to the government, mistrust to media, post, uh, yeah. post-modern yeah. culture and all yeah. that. And on the one hand, it's really important, I think, to see this war and this conflict in the context of the larger frame. It's not just one exceptional thing we need to resolve, and then the rest stays as it is. In a way, that's a symptom of what's yeah. going on in the global system. So yeah. we need to, you know, take that into account. But one needs to be very accurate here because Kremlin uses and utilizes in its propaganda these cracks and tensions in the global context and in the global discourse. Like, for instance, it uses this post-truth kind of thing just to say that, oh, you know, this war crimes in Bucha, we don't know the truth because it's post-truth, no one knows the truth, so he's just... It doesn't even try to convince yeah. that this is the way we believe things happened. Instead, it tries to utilize this no one knows the truth. Yeah. yeah. 
sows a seed of doubt, or, right? It's, yeah, 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 yeah. Or it's like you know there is this crisis of Western liberal democracy. Well, is there such a crisis? I guess there is. Yeah. But then instead of trying to find ways to work on that, we're like, okay, then instead we are going to attack this very yeah. model and see that we are something else, but we are not the solution. We're just, you know, the remnant of the, yeah. of the yeah. authoritarian traditional regime. So it utilizes, unfortunately, this global context in its own, yeah. for, for its own sake. Yeah. So that's very, you know, subtle balance of seeing yeah. it within the larger framework without playing the game of Kremlin propaganda, which also does it. Vlad, uh, I, I, yeah, I knew this would be a powerful interview, uh, and uh, it certainly was. I, I'm in awe of what you do, especially in the courage uh, of what you're doing. And uh, if there is any websites you can give me, anything that I can post as part of the show notes, uh, that perhaps those who wish to support, can support, want to support, uh, can do so, uh, then uh, you and I can exchange those uh, after this and I'll certainly put them up there uh, 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 as part of the show notes. Uh, but thank you firstly for the work you're doing. Uh, if, if, if this podcast can bear or act the role of that witness, even in the slightest sense, uh, then, uh, then, then I think I will have achieved my aim uh, with the show, especially given what's happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, to have somebody speak from well, Moscow, from the heart of the, I guess, invading army, so to speak, but to speak so candidly about uh, uh, the paradox of this particular war and the tensions within Russia itself uh, was hugely beneficial to me and I hope uh, to the audience as well. Uh, and, you know, we can only hope uh, that it at least fans uh, one or two flames uh, they can keep burning to try and keep that dialogue going uh, and, and, and increase it ever so slightly. Uh, so thank you very much for what you do and uh, for giving me so much of your time uh, today. Yeah, thank you too. And just, just as a last note, as you mentioned that I felt like saying, you know, being courageous and stuff, speaking from Moscow, from the heart of the invading country at the same time, it's also my huge privilege to be speaking from Moscow because, I mean, being in the heart of the invading country, rockets are not falling on my on my head right now. Neither did they, apart from the drones, a couple of them uh, uh, uh. in the last two years. So that's my challenge, how to use that privilege, being aware of that, how to use it uh. responsibly. Uh. And yeah, maybe all of us, how to use the privilege that we have in the current context. Very, very important point. Thank you for having me. I mean, that that definitely did serve as a, as a witness, even for me. And... Uh, yeah, just can't express my gratitude for hosting me and being the host from the capital H, you know. Thanks, lad. We'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Thank you, and until the next time.